Welcome to the Torah Journey Podcast. My name is Rabbi Ken Brodkin, and I've been a community rabbi for over 15 years. During that time, I've learned that the wisdom of Judaism is powerful, but it's not always easy to understand. Our weekly podcast will enrich your journey and give you practical advice about how to apply the wisdom of Judaism to your life. We'll offer you insights based on the Parsha, current events, the Jewish year, and more. This is the Torah Journey Podcast. Good morning. At least it's morning where I am. I hope that you are having a wonderful week. Last week, our country suffered a horrific attack on our democracy, and that's been a cause for reflection. I've been thinking about democracy, and I think that when people consider the early roots of democracy, they often look to Greece. Honestly, it's probably a stretch to say that democracy is a Torah idea per se. At the same time, it's also true that the Torah and the Exodus in particular has had a huge impact in the development of U.S. democracy. Founders of this country, such as Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, looked to images from the Exodus from inspiration. They saw the familiar images of Israel crossing the Red Sea to escape the rule of the tyrant Paro, as a parallel to the colonists crossing the Atlantic to escape the rule of the tyrant King George III. These were also images that the Puritan pilgrims looked to in their own exodus from England and Holland. And of course, black slaves in this country looked to the image of Moshe, who went to Paro demanding, let my people go. And here's another example. The founders saw in the Yitro story a template for the dispersion of power in a government as Yisro advised Moshe to appoint multiple layers of judges aside from himself. That story is a prelude to Sinai, illustrating the fact that Torah depends upon humble dispersion of power. It's not all concentrated in one person. And only then at Sinai did the Jewish people enter into a national covenant that would bind future generations. There's countless lessons about government from Shemot, that apply in modern times. And perhaps more than the structure of government, the Torah teaches us about the character of those who govern. If all we got to witness here was the humility of Moshe, that itself would be amazing. But what we get to see is even more than that. We see the struggles of the humble Moshe in direct contrast with the egomaniac Paro. At the burning bush, we find an incredible thing develops. God appears to Moshe, sending him as a shaliach, an emissary, to take the Jewish people out of Mitzrayim. And Moshe presents objections, including the fact that he's not fit for the job and it should be someone else. Moshe fully believes in the mission, but claims that he, Moshe, is not the man. And noting the centrality of speech in a leader's success, Moshe says, Lo ish devarim anochi, I'm not a man of words. Even from yesterday and the day before when you spoke with your servant, I have a heavy mouth and I am difficult of speech. Moshe is fully bought into the mission of Geula. He simply believes that someone else would be better for the job. Send rather the one whom you would normally send. This was a reference to his older brother, Aaron, who would have been the natural selection given his seniority. And yet God tells Moshe, do I not know your brother, Aaron Alevi, and that he will surely speak? 
He's even coming out to greet you, and he'll see you, and he's going to rejoice in his heart. Only Hashem could testify that someone doesn't just look happy, but actually feels joy inside. Throughout his life, Moshe struggles with leadership, even to the point of requesting death to get out of his position. In Baloscha, when the Jewish people come to Moshe for meat, Moshe claims that he cannot lead alone. And if that is my lot, he says, Hargoni Naharog, kill me. Moshe, turns out, is the ultimate reluctant leader. And there in Baloscha, the Torah testifies that Moshe is the humblest of all men upon the face of the earth. When we think about the prospect of God calling upon a man to lead, and that man who is passionate about the mission, refusing because there's greater people, it's clear where the Torah is coming from in describing that humility. And it was not just Moshe, but his brother too, Aaron. And so humility was a family trait as the two brothers go together to speak unto Paro and to take the Jewish people out of Mitzrayim. What is the basis for this humility? When Moshe asked God in Baloscha for more help leading the people, Hashem told Moshe that he will increase the spirit that's upon Moshe and that the 70 elders will partake of that spirit. And likewise, when Moshe asked for a successor, Moshe sought a man in whom there is ruach, in whom there is spirit. Moshe's basis for humility was that spirit of God that was in him. He saw that spirit and he knew that other people could become infused with the ruach. Once he got the ruach, Moshe wanted to see it spread to others He never saw himself as the basis of leadership. He saw it all rooted in Hashem. He was empty of himself, prepared to have the Spirit of God upon him, not to mention spreading out to others. In Moshe's world, he was not the center. God and his will for the Jewish people were the center. When Moshe stood at the Sna, at the burning bush, God told him the purpose of leaving Egypt. The people of Israel will come and serve me on this mountain. The Jewish people need a physical redemption so that they can come out and build a life where God is the center of their being. But there's a problem. Someone is standing in the way between Israel and God, so to speak, as we see that Paro says, Mi Hashem asher ashma bakolo. Who is God that I should listen to his voice? Lo yadati Hashem. I don't know Hashem. V'gamas b'nei Yisrael lo ashalech. And I will not send out the children of Israel. And in a sense, this sums up the whole struggle. Moshe and Aaron come to represent God. Paro knows nothing about Hashem. And this tension becomes the heart of the struggle. Hashem begins to send Moshe with the ten plagues, starting with turning the Nile River into dam, into blood, ascending to the slaughter of the firstborn sons. And throughout these plagues, all of the symbols of Egyptian power are decimated. And we follow the verses, and we find that there's three related themes throughout these plagues. Ani Hashem, Ani Hashem Bekerav Haaretz, and Ein Kimoni Bechol Haaretz. These are the tenets of Ani Hashem, God's existence, the fact that God is an active power in the world, and finally, that all other powers bow to God's will. That was quite a lesson, quite a set of lessons to demonstrate in Egypt where there was an orgy of gods and powers. But it's a long road through ten hard plagues to teach those lessons. 
How can Paro withstand these plagues, holding on to Israel, continually retracting the promise to send them out? The Torah remarks that Paro hardened his heart. In other times, it says that God hardened Paro's heart. And the commentaries struggle with the notion that God would harden Paro's heart. Did he not have free will? And the Ramban, Nachmanides, points out that Paro did plenty of hardening on his own watch. If Hashem also hardened Paro's heart, then God was assisting Paro in a path that he himself chose and affirmed many times. The mission, in fact, teaches us in the path that a person wills to go, he is led. The will of a person is the deepest part of who we are. And in the end, God, in his providence, assists people in the path that they choose for themselves. In the case of Paro, this had a much deeper purpose. As God helped Paro in his path, so to speak, it became abundantly clear that there's only one supreme leader, not Paro, but Hashem. And in the end, Paro, who did not know God, was an instrument to bring about the revelation of Hashem. But how did Paro get on this path to begin with? Where was he ultimately coming from? Our rabbis teach us about a very critical aspect of his personality. When Hashem sent Moshe to Paro, to bring about the plague of blood, God instructed Moshe to go out in the morning to the river where Paro goes. Now, why did Hashem mention to Moshe that Paro goes out to the river in the morning? And Rashi comments that Paro specifically went out in the morning to wade privately into the river. You see, all day, he acted as if he did not need to relieve himself, concealing the fact that he's just a mere mortal in need of a restroom. Each morning, though, he went out into the river and privately took care of himself. But in public, he was no mere mortal of flesh and blood. I think this insight shows how our rabbis understood Paro. In this whole orgy of idolatry, Paro himself was one of the gods. He was consumed with self-worship, and that explains a lot. It is true that Egypt worshipped the Nile River and the sun and a variety of other forces. But ultimately, Paro made himself an object of worship. The ten plagues came to break apart the gods of Egypt. And the last of those plagues, Makat Bechorot, shows that ultimately, the people themselves, when they take power too far, also need to be humbled. When we look today at the pyramids and the Sphinx, images of the Paros in Egypt, you can see just how much these leaders deified themselves. And what's left today of that world is a heap of stone pillars, relics of a lost age. On the other hand, what is left of Moshe, a man unto whom the Jews built no monument, is astounding. Never mind the, lesson that, the lessons that our country has taken from the Torah, but how many children to this day sit in Torah schools and meditate on the teachings of the Mechokek, the lawgiver Moshe, and so the arrogant Paro is the exact opposite of the humble Moshe. If Moshe was empty of himself, Paro was full of himself to the point of destruction of his own people. And here's an example. One of Paro's tools of de- denial was to have his own magicians reproduce the makot. They were unable, though, to replicate the lice, which are very tiny. And our rabbis teach us that lice are, are they're so small, they're not the requisite size 
of a piece of barley, something that can become tame or impure. And so the forces of Tuma, the forces of impurity, like the Egyptian magicians, cannot rule over lice. The magicians saw this. Et's Belohimi, they said. This is the finger of God. And further, as Egypt was decimated, they told Paro, do you not know that Egypt is destroyed? And from the small glimpse, we begin to see that Paro was a cult of personality. The advisors around him see that their world is falling apart, but no one can stop the foolish leader. Paro is too consumed with his need for power, and he basically self-destructs, taking the country with him in the process. This becomes even more pronounced in Bo. After the exodus, Paro cannot stop himself from chasing after Bnei Israel again, straight into the Sea of Reeds. His lust for power is a bottomless pit. The Gemara in Avodazara teaches us that the Yetzer Hara, the inclination for idolatry, was nullified in the time period of the Bayat Shani, the second temple. Yet, that doesn't mean that some of its residue is not with us. And perhaps a worship of leaders can be seen as a sort of idolatry. Of course, a cult of personality is not leadership. And it's something that can take place in different contexts. It could be a religious leader, a United States president, a leader of a company. In a cult of personality, the group revolves around the leader and his or her will, just like in Egypt. In a God-centered community, the people revolve around the will of Hashem. And likewise, a society can revolve around a mission, like the United States revolving around its covenantal mission. But whatever the dynamic, when you have a healthy leadership, it's possible for there to be a transition of power because it's not just about one leader. We look back to the Exodus and we see that event not only nullified the pantheon of gods, but also nullified the human cult of personality. It's important to recognize these differences because all all of this has practical ramifications in terms of who we follow, even say on a very local level. An organization can become infested with abuse if people are not careful of the cult of personality. When you do find abuse in in an organization, you very likely are going to find a cult of personality. Remember, the nature of that person is to abuse because it's really about themselves. What is a cult of personality? Here are some of the traits that I would look for. Firstly, they promote the belief that only they can do the job. And they promote a culture of fear and infallibility where there's just fear around that person and questioning anything they do. And what happens is that the group is loyal to the leader and not necessarily to the mission of the society. While recent events offer a stark example of these kinds of problems, we can see this dynamic in various nuanced situations. I think about the persona of FDR. He made his contributions, but he also had grave shortcomings, and he sort of was a cult of personality who promoted this idea that he was the only one that could do it. And leaders do the opposite. The leader is all about the mission and the people being led. They're open to criticism and even embrace defeat if needed. And the leader sees themselves in the larger context and is constantly promoting that bigger picture, not their own power. 
Today, as Jews, we have no statue of Moshe. He was not a supreme leader, but we have Torah Tzivolanu Moshe, the Torah of God that Moshe commanded us. Moshe's mission was the word of Hashem. As a leader, he cherished the word of Hashem, and he saw God's spirit. He saw it go into his heart, and he rejoiced as the spirit increased and flowed out to his fellow leaders. Thank you for joining us. I'm Rabbi Ken Brodkin, and this is the Torah Journey Podcast.